Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, Euripides Cleon. I'm Mariah Rose. And to those of you who are regular listeners, you may have noticed we switched our podcast, I think, for the first time ever, um, from Tuesday to today, Saturday. I wonder why. Because it's our special joy-filled oh. Christmas episode. <laughs> that one's happening. <laughs> no, the more we got into this, I was like, whoa, this is a major downer for Christmas. We'll keep the downer parts to a minimum. Yeah, the best we can. For those of you who are listening to us for the first time, thank you for finding us. We are a podcast about 80s pop culture. For those of you returning and who have been with us the whole time, thank you. We mm-hmm. hope that you appreciate this one. It's a pretty bizarre story. And to everyone, please stick around till the end of this episode because we have a very special announcement that we'd like to share with everybody. That being said, yes, how's your holiday season going? Great. We've had kind of a crazy season. I just finished my yoga teacher certification, so yeah. uh, I've been working hard on that. I'm feeling great. Got a tattoo. Um so I'm living my best life. Yeah, you really are. <laughs> what about you? I'm doing well. I've got a lot going on right now. Pretty busy working on another film for for a guy and got to get all that music done pretty quick because mm-hmm. submissions to festivals, you know, don't wait on people. <laughs> it's true. It's fast and furious. But it is. is it too fast, too furious? Yeah, I'm like the Vin Diesel of film composers. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, this is episode 135. Can you believe that? That's a lot. We've done this for a while. Yeah, we were doing it every week and they were really piling up. And then we went the beginning of last year, we went to every two weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's still a a buttload of episodes. But this episode, I'm just wondering, you know, for all who are listening to this. (laughs) I know what you're going to say. Do they even know it's Christmas? sold one and a quarter million copies in one week. The fastest selling single ever. Britain's brand new number one, Band-Aid. Do they know it's Christmas time? Paul Young. It's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. At Christmas time, we let it light and we vanish it. Boy George. Okay, so for those of you who grew up in the 80s, you would definitely know this song. For those of you who didn't, you would definitely know this song because it plays incessantly every single year during the holidays. Uh, It's an interesting tune that we'll discuss, but more importantly, it's a very bizarre story of how it all came together. Mm -hmm. So in this episode, we are going to take a look at the origins, the effects, and the aftermath of the one and only Band-Aid mm-hmm. fundraising Africa relief project. And I think it's funny that they changed it to just Africa. Yes. Because that's just one country, right? <sighs> you know, okay, so I teach. <laughs> I teach at a college level, and I can tell you many a college student still thinks Africa is a 
country. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I uh, When we were listening to somebody who was involved talk about it, they were saying how you would never do that with Asia or Europe. Like if, <laughs> if Japan was in trouble, you wouldn't do a fundraiser and then say it's the Asian Relief Fund. No. So it is pretty funny, but this is kind of the very beginning. You can tell it's already off to a... Um, a little tone-deaf start in more ways than one. <laughs> but it's a great story overall. So let's get into the story of Band-Aid. Okay, so before we even get to the music, we have to talk about Ethiopia in yes. the 80s. Are you guys ready? You ready for some Christmas cheer? <laughs> I know. So I'm going to condense this because, first of all, it's incredibly complicated. But just kind of give you your bearings, and this will probably be more than Bob Geldof knew at the time. So you're yeah. already going to be ahead. So I don't know if you are aware that there was a famine in Ethiopia in the 1980s, like at the time. Mm -hmm. I was sort of vaguely aware of it in a broader kind of cultural sense. For example, I remember people telling their children, like, eat your dinner, there's kids starving in Africa. Do you remember that oh, in the Oh, yeah, 80s? that was like a common... I mean, I still think that that's got some after effects that uh -huh. st still ripple out. I would say as a grade schooler during this time, definitely that was going around with the parents. But then on the school playground, it was, you know, typical poor taste humor about mm. starving children in Africa. That was just the 80s. was like, it was part of pop culture. It was weird. And I don't think people quite understood what was actually happening over there. And it wasn't just about, you know, drought or something like that. So... Yeah, for sure. This is, um, it's a bizarre part of the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, as I was researching, I thought about how weird it is. Obviously, um, you know, saying eat your food because there's children starving uh, is a stupid way to talk about people dying of starvation. But I think the message was intended to be a reminder that we should be grateful for what we have. Sure. Uh, I also remember seeing the covers of magazines as a child and being shocked by the photos that are, of course, meant to induce shock of starving children, mothers, men and women. And it, it had a pretty uh, heavy impact even on on me as a child. I don't I don't know if you had the same experience, yeah, sure. but it's it was weird. quite shocking. These images that we were seeing, you know, on the news, on magazines, wherever, they were images that our planet hadn't really seen since the liberation of the internment camps in, yeah. in uh, World War II. So I think that as uh, a global culture, we didn't think that was still possible. They thought, you know, we had moved past this. Of course, the circumstances are very different, but that level of suffering, we had kind of turned a blind eye to. And here we were being confronted with that mm -hmm. in the news. It was deeply shocking and deeply unsettling. And I know this is a, as a Christmas topic, it's really heavy <laughs> and we'll get to the lighter stuff and then you'll feel weird about it. But I think it's <laughs> a laser graves guarantee. <laughs> we're going to make you feel weird. I think it's important, though, to understand what was happening before we come to Band-Aid's goals and their shortcomings. So quick general look at what was happening in Ethiopia in the 1980s that led to this situation that we were seeing, you know, in America as children. So from 1983 to 1986, Ethiopia, Ethiopia was hit by a devastating famine the likes of which had not been seen in more than a century. So it was a really dire situation. The famine itself was devastating, but its consequences 
were magnified by a really fraught political climate. Mm-hmm. For sure. As I was researching this, I went down the rabbit hole. And if you are interested in it, I strongly encourage you to look into it. But I'm going to just boil it down to the brass tacks. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, right? Yeah. What is brass tacks? What's the origin of that? I don't know. Okay, we're going there. So the drought was made worse by the government and their counterinsurgency policies. So the military dictatorship, the DERG, D-E-R-G, was led by, and forgive me. <laughs> Come on, you can do it. Mangitsu Hale Merriam. Uh, they were using the famine by way of restricting food within an already devastating time of famine. Right. So they were holding back food and supplies from non-insurgencies and non-insurgent people. They were fighting against the Tigre, the people, People's Liberation Front. So the government was using this area in areas with no insurgency whatsoever. And it just made the situation so, so much worse. And they were impeding international efforts to bring aid to the people mm-hmm. as a means of control. What I'm saying here is that the government intentionally exacerbated and worsened an already historic famine. And the end result is that nearly half a million refugees left the country itself. Two and a half million people were displaced. So they were taken, moved from one part of the country to another, left out of the country. It was all over the place. And 1.2 million people died. This number is contested, but that's sort of the generally accepted number. And about 200,000 children were left orphans. Okay. There so, you go. And that's in one country. Wow. That's intense. To summarize, an incredibly complicated story. There was a civil war, economic hardship, and famine, which caused catastrophic loss of life. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> and on top of that, um, this was kind of misreported to not have to discuss the real problems that were happening in, in in Ethiopia. But there was a drought, too, that was happening. So this was adding to the hardship overall. So it was like just one thing after another. The drought caused the famine. Right. Yes. And then the famine couldn't be alleviated because these... Uh, because of the political situation was controlling the food supplies. And so it was just out of control. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this brings us to... The formation of Mm Band-Aid. How this started was the BBC did a really fantastic kind of documentary bringing awareness to the famine in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty unapologetic. It was very brutally honest about here's the images. And that's the report that we saw. We watched a documentary on this as well. And they were interviewing the news broadcaster that did the original airing in 84. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, you know, we wanted it to be as in your face as possible, because the best way for people to fully grasp what was happening was to see the images. And these images really are pretty devastating and shocking. Yeah. So people around England at the time are watching this broadcast, and it's, it's really got a pretty heavy impact on a lot of people. So one of these guys who was watching it that night and was deeply affected was a guy named Bob Geldof. He was a well-known musician in a semi-successful band called the Boomtown Rats. So he was very well connected. Yes. You know, he wasn't top tier success in the UK, but he definitely was in a successful band. And he's watching this and he was really moved and thought, we've got to do something. We don't know what, but something has to be done. So he felt this call to action. 
This is important, and why I say this is because this is the unifying thread that we'll go back to throughout this episode, is that I do think that at the core of this whole story, Mm -hmm. I think that Bob Geldof really was moved by what he saw. Yeah, his intentions were pure. He Absolutely, and he felt the calling to do something. It's just about what are your... What are your talents? How Mm -hmm. can you do anything when you're not a rich business person or a corporation? Mm -hmm. You're just a musician in a band. So he contacts his then girlfriend, who is kind of said to be the real brains behind the whole operation, Paula Yates, who is very well connected. She's the one that actually knew a lot of the musicians and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But she was working, I think at the time, on a show... And Midge Ur was there, and he, Midge is from Thin Lizzy and Visage, but really from Ultravox, which is an awesome band. Mm-hmm. And they were much more successful, and they knew each other. So she kind of told him about Bob's story, mm-hmm. and they got in touch with each other. And this all happened really, really fast. This so whole fast. story happened at like breakneck speed. So Bob and Midge sit down, and they have this talk. And Bob says, I need to do something. And they come up with this idea of, well, we're musicians. Maybe we can do a song and that single can raise a little bit of money. That's how it originally started. Mm -hmm. Bob said, I'm not a a hit songwriter like you. So how about you do the music and I'll do the lyrics? And Midge said, sure. You know, he, he already had a song floating around that had never gotten used anyway. So they adapted it. And this is where we get the basic track of Do They Know It's Christmas? So the two of them are together, and then they start thinking, well, if we really want to raise some money, maybe we could get some star power behind us. So they start thinking about ways they can do this. And then in this weird freak turn of events on the documentary, Bob was talking about, do you remember this part? Oh, yeah. He's walking down the street, and he looks in the window. At an antique shop. Yeah. And the dude from Spando Ballet is <laughs> in there and he puts his face up at the window and says, you know, come out here real quick, tells him the story. And he says, well, we're about to go in on tour in Japan, you know, tomorrow, but absolutely we're willing to do this. And he says, great. So just because he happened to be in the right place at the right time already has somebody with real star power willing to do it. Then as he's walking away, he goes down the street and towards the end of the street, he runs into Simon Laban from Duran Duran <laughs> and pitches the idea to him. And he says, sure, I'll do it too. And he said all of this was in the exact same day that they came up with the idea and the song already had two major stars willing to do it for him. Imagine being like a teenager who happened to be on King's Road that day and you'd be like, whoa, is that Bob Geldof? I'm going to creepily follow him. <laughs> yeah. And then just seeing all of this unfold. There was somebody, I'm sure. Yeah, and he was saying, too, that this was really unusual because bands of this caliber, especially Duran Duran and Spando Ballet, were all over the world at this time promoting their records. So the fact that they both just happened to be in town and he ran into them was kind of a sign he took it that they should really go forward with this. The idea behind getting celebrities to sing on this album and participate was two parts. One, they had to be willing to do it for free. It was Mm -hmm. a charitable contribution. And two, they wanted to get as big a stars as possible because they knew the bigger the stars, the more money would be raised. So they were really going for it all. You know, I wondered as I was researching this, were there mid-level stars who had volunteered and Bob's like, no, thank you. 
there were stars who got the snub, I think. Oh, and yeah. I'm going to read a quote from a very special one that we know very well, <laughs> who was not invited. And you can guess his reaction, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> anyway, so that's basically how it all came together. The intentions, like we said, were pure. The idea is you pull together this massive pool of stars and then you record a record. The problem is they wanted to put it out before Christmas to really pull on the heartstrings of, you know, the British public, the buying market. But mm -hmm. also because if you don't do it before Christmas, then your your market's gone. You're well, not going to yeah, get the, the same song. sales. So that's normally okay if this was in the summertime or something like that. But they this is planning, the end yeah. of November. This is absolutely unheard of at the time mm -hmm. to think of getting together the biggest stars at the time into a studio, record an album, mix it, master it, put it on vinyl, get the artwork done, produce it and put it into every store in England in the matter of a few weeks was absolute insanity. It is pretty crazy when you think about it. Like, what are what kind of a person goes, yeah, I'm going to make this happen. <laughs> I would look at those statistics and be like, well, that doesn't make sense. So maybe for next year or like a St. Patrick's Day fundraiser. I don't know. But he's crazy. He is totally crazy to say, I can do this. But he does it. It's like it just everybody kept nodding their heads. Okay, yeah, sure. And you can tell the whole time Bob and Midge didn't really know how it was all going to come no. together. But they got the ball rolling fast. And there was a guy who worked at one of the pressing plants. And he said... It didn't matter how big of a star you were at the time, Bowie or Queen or anybody, if you didn't give at least a nine week, you know, run up to it, you weren't getting your record made. That's just all there is to mm -hmm. it. There was no way they were going to bend the rules. And this was done in the matter of like seven days. So unbelievable. It's really interesting to think about, but it's because this window was so small. They had to get it into the stores before Christmas. So there's the idea. They've already got a couple stars on board and... Now they're going to book studio time. They went to SARM Studios. I don't know. Maybe it's called SARM, but I'm assuming it's SARM in Notting Hill. It was a very successful studio there. And the, the owner there offered them 24 hours of free recording time. That was his contribution. Was you That's can, smart. It's like yeah, a huge ad for him. Absolutely. And you can have a whole day here, which they used every moment of it. But the bulk of what we're going to talk about was done between 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. That's when all <laughs> the stars were brought in and then left. And then that additional time was filling out the music, doing any kind of backing tracks that needed to happen and all that. And they got this thing recorded, mixed and mastered in one day. It was really bonkers. It's so crazy. And, you know, I was really struck by their lack of preparedness. Like they had kind of a song. And you and I were talking when we were watching that documentary how it seemed like so many of the artists were seeing the music and the song for the very first time. They absolutely were. They were being... Hand we'll talk about it when we get to Boy George especially where, I mean, he just came off the plane and they handed him the music and were like, sing. <laughs> I mean, Go. That's so bizarre. And I think people assume if you're a professional musician, that's just what you do. You can sight read on the spot. But mm -hmm. uh, one of the interesting... Substories to this whole 
Band-Aid experience was how nervous and insecure all these major stars were around their contemporaries. Yeah. Which I think is funny. It was a bit of a humbling experience for many of them. Yeah, I, I think it was indeed. Because their talents were their raw on display like not the finished product them struggling through a new song learning it and performing it and having to be pitch perfect and hit it in front of everybody else probably thinking you know i could do that better so it was really interesting because there was a lot of personality a lot of ego and packed into one tight room we also before we get into who some of the names we can't cover everybody but before we get into some of the people who are involved with this, um, I think we should note how skilled Bob Geldof was at building up Buzz. He had hired a film crew mm-hmm. to be there. He let the media know. So it was like everybody was arriving to full paparazzi as everybody came to to do their part. But they didn't know. That's the other interesting yeah. thing is the stars were all in their frumpy like sweatpants and stuff like that. Like who was it banana rama who who were really like well we would have dressed up yeah. instead you know our hair was in a scrunchie and we were wearing sweats when we got out of our little tiny car and yeah they climbed out of the back of like their their pinto or something yeah. yeah i thought that was funny that a lot of them were caught off guard because they didn't realize it was going to be this media parade and yeah the video part is really interesting too the intent was while everybody was here not while we're recording the rest of the song later but while everybody's in the room just go around and record it and we can have a music video as well ready to go within days this can be aired everywhere to to give buzz as well i mean this was really top level thinking even though it was all completely on the spot yeah it was a strange mix of control and chaos and while we're talking about the stars arriving and this is i'd say the very first and most obvious tone deaf note is many of them arrived in limousines (laughs) for for a charity uh, Uh, event flaunting their wealth yes flaunting their wealth to raise money for starving children Yes, it was one of many missteps that I do think overall, again, I think the intent was good, but they Mm -hmm. didn't quite maybe understand the larger picture, but they showed up. You know, that's the surprising part is there was this nervousness at the beginning with Midge and Bob that nobody was going to show because you know how stars are. Have you ever had this too, where you run into somebody and I mean, I guess in the band circle, especially say, oh, we should play a show together sometime. And then somebody's like, yeah, for sure. And then they just don't. Yeah. <laughs> this I would imagine at top level acts where they're touring the world and you run into them literally on the street and say, hey, uh, you want to come to my studio on Sunday? Keep in mind, this was a Sunday morning that they were recording. Yeah. All these divas have to get up on a Sunday morning for free and come over and record a song they've never even heard before. So yeah, that's pretty big ask. It was a pretty big ask. And I was shocked how everybody showed up. Yeah. So almost everybody, we should say. <laughs> let's get to some of the artists. Uh, so we have Big Boy Bono. Yep. Who was not Big Boy at the time. No, he was Baby Boy Bono at but the time. But this was one of his breakout moments, a cringeworthy breakout moments, which he'll later admit. Yeah, he does. And then the subsequent event that followed this is really what put you 2 on the global map. Yeah, he hits a power note in this that really elevated him, yes. lifted his voice and his career. <laughs> also, can we talk about his outfit? It's pretty funny. Okay. He did come dressed ready to impress, but I would imagine that's just how Bono is at all given times. I presume so. There's certain stars in this scenario who you can tell are always dressed up. Mm-hmm. Then there are certain ones who seem like 
they will only dress up if absolutely if they're forced going on stage. To. Bono is somebody who seems to just wake up ready to go for paparazzi at all times. He had this giant barrel hat on. Yeah, it was cool. It was kind of cool. It was kind of like he could turn it, flip it over, black hat, and maybe make a stew in it. It was very tall. Yeah, it was very like a pilgrim hat. It's yeah. kind of what it was like. And then he was wearing all black, but he had his classic Bono 80s mullet in full effect. Yeah, I mean, in the documentary we watched, they were they kept talking about the mullet, but now we're back. We just call it like a wolf cut or fancy mullet. Yeah, Canadian passport. Yeah, no. Tennessee top oh, hat. come on. Kentucky waterfall. All so right. I think people are back where mullets are fine. Yeah, so, for sure. They're like hipster again, I guess. Yeah. So the the pendulum swings on the mullet. He looks like he could be walking the street right now and be pretty rad. Yeah, he would fit in right now for sure. Yes. That's not the case for some of the other stars. Phil Collins. <laughs> Phil Collins with, looks like a librarian. He always looks like a librarian, though. I He's do so love cute. when we were listening to him talk. He was like, yeah, I was never really the fashion fashion forward guy but he came in a sweater vest he had a sweater vest on and he he's definitely older than everybody mm-hmm. and just looked hilarious he, he really looked like he was going to you know fill out your dmv form and give you a license or something it was really funny yeah he came in to to do the drums obviously and he tore it up like they gave him a general um guideline and he did his own thing with it he joked that he would just hit it harder to make it sound better is that true you're a drummer yeah well and he also said because everybody was watching him uh, you know he joked that they they called him with the idea that they needed a famous drummer not a good drummer (laughs) (laughs) although i will go to bat for phil collins he's an awesome drummer in early genesis give it the time of day with peter gabriel and stuff like he was no joke back in the day and he showed up and did what he does best and i think he kind of schooled some of the youngins because he said he just felt that surge of like I'm around all these people and they're all watching me and he Mm -hmm. felt inspired and they all said he like knocked it out of the park yeah right away I mean he was just a total professional well he was in his 30s he was like yeah this is what he does throw down he this was his normal working hours at this (laughs) point exactly all the 20 somethings had been just up They'd yeah. been partying on a Saturday night and got in their limo and came here. They were still partying yeah. when they arrived. Yes, there was a lot of that, which we should mention because that's a massive disconnect. Nobody was talking about what was happening. No, everybody was doing. just getting high and talking about each other and their fashion and stuff. <laughs> okay, so we did mention Simon Lebon. Yes. He was there, as was George Michael. That's right. Those were big, big stars at the time. Huge. And this they, was there wham was time. A couple, yeah. This is, there's a couple other big stars that were supposed to come on board but couldn't do it. Number one would be David, David Bowie. Bowie. Yeah. And then there was another big one. Paul too. McCartney. Paul McCartney. And both of them couldn't because they had... They were just wrapped up in things mm-hmm. already going on, but they contributed to the B-side. Yeah, David Bowie, you can go watch it on YouTube. He does like a little intro to what's actually happening. So he t- discusses, I, I didn't watch McCartney's, but I presume it's the same, um, discussing what's happening actually in Ethiopia. Yeah. So b- giving some context to the dumb song. Yeah, so. but the overall star power was still very much front and center. You know? Yeah, we have members of Banana Rama and, oh, Sting. Yeah, Sting's there. Cool and the gang is there. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And we got to talk about a boy George. Boy George. Let's talk about him. So 
go back. This is perfect timing because we gave a very quick mention, but we did a Boy George episode, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed doing that, that one. And in that, we we do give a brief mention of this whole Band-Aid and experience. But he was, at the time, in 84, as, as you'll remember from our previous episode, Culture Club was dominating. And so he was a massive star to get to come on board. However, they were touring in America at the time, and he agreed to do it. So they booked the studio, like I said, and they had it till, remember I said 11 till 7 at night? Mm-hmm. It was um, 6 o'clock at night or something like that by the time he arrived because he never showed up. And John Moss, the drummer of Culture Club, was there too, participating. He was doing auxiliary drums and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he said everybody kept bugging him, you know, where's where's George? Where's he at? He's like, I don't know where he's at. Yeah. Turns out he was in New York sleeping in a hotel room <laughs> while everybody was actively in the studio recording this charity record. So Bob Geldof calls him up and says, where are you? And Boy George's like, what are you talking about? Oh, that's today? <sighs> I'm in New York. So they prepare a plane for him and have him fly over. And in four hours time, they said, gets over to the studio and arrives right off the plane and walks into the studio, disheveled. His voice is all hoarse. He's never seen the lyrics or anything like that. And they put him in the studio and they're like, it's time to go. (laughs) And you know what? You can watch the footage of this. Yeah. That dude is an absolute like professional when it comes to his craft. It's pretty incredible. Yes, not his behavior. No, but... his behavior is very much self-absorbed boy George, where he's just worried about his looks and everything oh. else. But he gets in there. He's a little rough. He's not finding his, his pitch at first. Then they bring him some brandy. He takes a couple swigs. His voice sounds good. Ugh. And then when they hit record, his voice is golden. And it's just boy George doing what he does best. So. Yeah. I can't believe that they even got him to come on board and he was in New York at the time. Oh my goodness. This story is so bonkers. It is. And, you know, we watched this and watched them all talking about it, about their experience. And not one of them mentioned Ethiopia. Except for the dude from Cool in the Gang. Yeah. He's the only one that said, you know, we're doing this because of what's happening in Ethiopia. Here's why it's a good cause. Everybody else talked about what it was like to be around other famous people themselves themselves their fashion their shortcomings as a musician mm-hmm. was totally and maybe that's because it was in retrospect this documentary was happening after the fact so there the intent of it was to reflect back on the experience maybe not on the event i would wonder if you listen to what they were saying at the actual time of the event if they were maybe a bit more self-aware but it didn't look it like didn't it didn't seem like it. it seemed like a bunch of really rich um, people all mingling together. A bunch of rich, mostly white people. Oh, yeah, for sure. But <laughs> they all did give their time for free. You know, they, they were there to support the cause. And they did. They did. And they put this song together. Then they do all the additional tracks that needed to happen. And everybody takes off. And for the stars, this is kind of it. They'll be called upon a couple times to do a few little events to, to pitch it. But then it all falls back on the hands of really Bob Geldof is the one who took mm-hmm. took this up. So Bob's the one that had to then stay in the studio, make sure that everything got mixed and mastered. I mean, there was a couple other people, too. I don't give them all the credit. He stayed up all night long and got an actual working track ready to be delivered to 
the radio the very next morning yep. to get that thing going. That's how fast this turnaround was. One day. One day. And then while that's happening, simultaneously, they're getting the artwork made. They're getting the pressing plants lined up. The video's being edited right now. Yeah. They're going to go on top of the pops. All this kind of stuff. So everything's in motion. And now it's kind of go time. So the single comes out December 3rd, 1984. Keep in mind, this project started at the end of November. So Yikes. this is crazy. It went right to the top. Yeah. I mean, it debuted at the number one single in the UK. In one week alone, it sold a million copies. Yikes. It became not only the fastest charting single of all time in, in Europe, but it also, to up until, you know, years and years later was the highest selling single of all time. Lost out to Candle in the Wind. <laughs> yeah, 1997, baby. <laughs> was that your Elton John? I gotta get into the 97 voice. Hold on. Yeah, it's an older voice. An yeah. older Elton. Your single's going away <laughs> like a candle in the wind. <laughs> yes, perfect. Okay, thanks. Perfect. So, I... it's a massive success. Like, unlike anything anybody's ever seen what i thought was really interesting is they're playing it all the time the video is now playing there was a musician i don't remember who it was i'm sure in england he was really popular but he had i think the number one song at the time he went on air and said stop buying my single and buy this single instead wow and so gave up you know these kind of sales to try and help too also there were stories of people buying like all the copies in the store and then putting them back out on the shelf so they could be rebought a second time like trying to boost the sales of wow. things so that's because wild. the pressing plants could not keep up yeah i heard that they went to basically like every plant in england trying to get this to keep up with demand because wow. they were selling them so fast flew off the charts the money's being raised the highest selling single in UK history. All in all, it eventually raised $24 million with this one single alone. And then it wouldn't just stop here, though. What it would do is have this cascade effect worldwide, which we'll discuss in just a second. Mm -hmm. And mostly the, the biggest one would be leading to a live event, Live Aid, which we all know. And we've discussed a couple times here. But with all that put together in the span of you know two years or a year, they raised over $150 million to go towards this relief fund. So, you know, say what you will about it. Uh, they raised a lot of money uh, for this cause. They absolutely did. And inspired by the success, other groups, uh, other countries had their own little super groups that hopped onto the charitable song bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of funny. <laughs> and so we had USA for Africa. Northern Lights, Here and Aid, Disco Aid. Oh, Disco Aid, yikes. This uh, is in 84, 85? Yeah. Ooh. I didn't really look into it, but yes, there Please was. Please tell a, me that was Germany. I, I mean, it's got to be, right? It would be Disco Tech Aid. <laughs> <laughs> the success of Band Aid also led to the creation of two live benefit concerts, uh, USA for Africa and mm -hmm. Live Aid. Both of these were broadcast in over 160 countries. Yeah, it was pretty pretty massive. Everybody knows. We had talked about doing an episode on yeah. Live Aid for years, but we just didn't get around to it. But needless to say, that's a pretty 
crazy story in and of itself. Yeah, obviously we can't go into that. But building on the success of Band-Aid, these two, Band-Aid and Live Aid combined, raised around 150 million U.S. dollars for famine relief efforts. That's so much money. And if you thought that was the end of Band-Aid, you'd be very wrong. In 1989, they followed up and had Band-Aid 2. And again, it was like the idea just occurred to them and they recorded on the 3rd and had it out by the 5th of December. So strange. The same song, right? Yeah. It's always the same song. It is always the same song, except eventually over time, somebody got the bright idea to change some of the lyrics out. Yeah. We haven't discussed this yet. Oh, yeah. But we need to get to the actual content of the song. Okay. Uh, We'll talk about criticism coming up. Most of the criticism is about just how bad the song is overall, Mm -hmm. because it's just a bad song. It is. (laughs) With a lot of famous people. Mm -hmm. But the lyrics are very cringy in a lot of spots. It's very completely just tone deaf to what was actually happening. Yeah. Oversimplifying everything, making it like, you know, the classic kind of white savior comes in and will solve all your problems because... It never snows in Africa, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Also, there's no water. Do they even know it's Christmas, considering a huge part of the population is Christian? Yeah, I'm going to say they do. But they didn't celebrate it because they were under communist rule and they wouldn't have been celebrating Christmas. It's just weird. Uh, All these things were so bad. I would say some of the worst lines um, were changed eventually over time. The, the one that gets all the attention is Bono's big standout moment where he got yeah. handed the one line he didn't want to do. He knew at the time. He knew it. it and it's on line. record of him fighting against it saying, are you sure you want to say this? This does not seem appropriate. And Bob Geldof, in his mind, again, intentions were pure. He was like, this is what's going to send it home. This is what's going to make people really feel it in their gut. And so Bono agreed to do it. Let's hear that part of the song that got all the criticism. Well, I will say Bono did Bono very well, but yikes. What a a misstep on the way you should be phrasing the plight of others. So, yeah, got a lot of criticism. Um, We can get to the criticism of the actual song in a second, but I did think it was worth mentioning that the lyrics alone uh, were problematic. Yeah, it's weird, though, because it seems like it just shot out so fast and was such a big hit that nobody stopped to go, is this appropriate? Yeah. Yeah, I I do think everybody was caught up in the idea of the intent. You know, this is a great idea. Absolutely, let's support this. And then I don't think it was until after the fact where people started slowing down and saying, wait, what are you saying again? Yeah. So, but it did have a pretty quick reaction. I would say several people picked up on that pretty fast and and felt like uh, the approach was all wrong as far as the content of the lyrics. Yeah, and I did want to say, though, uh, they talked... Bob to going to Ethiopia. He didn't even want to go to Ethiopia and be like the rich guy helping, you know, lifting up babies out of the dirt or anything like that. He was very, very clear about shots that would be allowed of him because he didn't want to be seen as, you know, 
a white savior. There yeah. was at least a moment of clarity when he went there to promote or to show where the funds were being used because yeah. the funds did do a lot of good. Yeah, there and there was a lot of money that went over there. Yes. So there is a lot of criticism that was written about the song itself over the years, but we can't go into all that. I do want to highlight two of my favorites, though. Okay. One of them is the band Chumbawamba. Yeah, that one. You take a whiskey drink? That that band, <laughs> apparently, drink. I don't know anything about them apart from that one song. Mm-hmm. I guess they used to be this like really politically charged punk band back in the day and in 86 at their height of their like we will take on every cause head on had a major problem with this whole project because they felt like it was completely taking away from the actual problems they released a whole album in 1986 called pictures of starving children sell records oh and gave it to them you know basically came out there in the public and said none of this is is working like this is just a big show off of celebrities Mm -hmm. i don't know how i feel about that i do think that there's some truth to that as you can tell with the lyrics and stuff that they maybe didn't quite do their research it's very rushed but at the end of the day a lot of money was raised and given over to that relief fund so it's not like it was entirely empty but i can see why people would criticize the the intent behind it well and also if you want to really look at the root issue here the money yes it's helping people but it's not solving the problem at all they're literally putting on a band-aid on a wound because the real issue is the government musicians throwing money at starving people isn't going to solve the problem yeah the government is creating the problem yeah that's where the real reform has to happen for real change to happen but you know at at the time these musicians are just trying to do the only thing that they know how to do, which is raise money through songs. So it's complicated. Oh. My favorite criticism, okay, the one that I've been saving, comes from our very special Morrissey oh. of the Smiths. <laughs> which, okay, of course we love the Smiths, and we also equally love making fun of Morrissey. Mm. Do you remember that story? I, I heard uh, Robert Smith of The Cure, tell a story one time that he walked into a party and saw Morrissey and walked over him, over to him and punched him in the arm to say hi. And he said Morrissey just got quiet and started crying. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Morrissey. Morrissey was not invited to participate. Mm-hmm. And in 1985, in a magazine, he gives this quote. Oh, goodness. I'm not afraid to say that I think Band-Aid was a debacle. Or to say that I think Bob Geldof is a nauseating character. Many people find that unsettling, but I'll say it as loud as anyone wants me to. In the first instance, the record itself was absolutely tuneless. One can have great concern for the people of Ethiopia, but it's another thing to inflict daily torture on the people of Great Britain. (laughs) It was an awful record considering the massive talent involved, and it wasn't done shyly. It was the most self-righteous platform ever in the history of popular music. Uh, he's not wrong. He's not entirely wrong. I mean, I'm <laughs> and, not going to, I don't have any, I'm not going to take umbrage with that. And Bob Gildoff himself is on record saying years later, I'm responsible for one of the worst songs ever recorded. Yeah. Yep. So it is funny that I think years go by, people are like, well, it did its job. Mm-hmm. It's just not a very good song. And... It, 
I think that the job that needed doing wasn't to be done by musicians. I understand, like, we all want to alleviate the suffering of others. And I do appreciate that pure intention. But it was definitely a complicated situation. But in regardless of what you think, this isn't the end of Band-Aid. Like I said, we had <laughs> yeah, it in it's 89. It's going to keep going. And if you thought it ended in 89, you'd be wrong. In 2004, the idea was reimagined as Band-Aid 20, because it's been 20 years. Yeah. Super clever. The group, which included Justin Hawkins of The Darkness, Chris Martin of Coldplay, Paul McCartney, and of course, Bono came back. He wanted to... Yeah, he's like, I already know my line. (laughs) (laughs) So they did it. And then, wait, we're still not done. Band-Aid 30 came out in 2014, this time... Of course, we have to focus on, you know, a non-white country. So continuing, we are focusing on giving aid to Ebola victims and the prevention of the spread of Ebola. And as in previous incarnations, they covered the track. Do we know it's Chris or do they know it's Christmas? The song this time was performed by One Direction, Sam Smith, Ed Sheeran, Ellie Goulding, Rita Ora, Chris Martin, and... Bono. Bono came back. He still knows his line. And this is 30 years later. It spent three weeks in the top 10 uh, UK. And they also released German and French versions. And Carla Bruni sang the French version. Oh, cute. You know what's weird about Bono is you know, he's this big humanitarian. And he works with Bob Geldof still to this day. Like they, they work together. So it makes perfect sense that he would be involved. But he had this moment of insight in that documentary that I thought was really telling. So it's weird that he would keep doing this because he said, you know, they raised all this money and that when they thought about it, they realized that's what that country spends every month. Like this is not going to do really anything. It was a lot of money, but it wasn't going to fix the problem at all and so it's interesting that he would say yeah let's do that again and again and again even though he knows it's basically just a temporary fix and it's not actually solving anything well and he said also that in in the years ensuing years the population has doubled so it's not a better situation no and let's talk about the money this is interesting so as we said 150 million dollars was raised through the two events and Put towards it, it did go over there. That's why Bob Geldof had to go over and see how the money was being used. And the bulk of it really was used for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. However, do you remember why the famine started in the first place? Was it incredibly corrupt government? Mm -hmm. Of course, they got their hands on the money. So in 1986, Spin did an expose on this and discovered, this is right after it happened, Mm -hmm. discovered that a lot of the money from the projects unintentionally actually helped the African dictator to buy weapons from the Russians to be able to control the country still. So so a lot of the money was being used up to 20% of it went directly to local warlords and stuff like that. So with that much money, you can only keep your hands on so much. So I don't want that to be the takeaway that like, oh, yeah, then all the money just went over and and helped corrupt people. That's not true. It really did do a lot of good. It's more the story of Band-Aid altogether. And this single is reflecting on it. Mm -hmm. It's an absolutely insane idea to have to begin with Mm -hmm. that you're just going to get all these top notch famous people to donate their time on a Sunday afternoon for one day. And then in a week's time, turn around a single 
that's going to raise money for Ethiopia. And it all worked. It all happened Mm -hmm. and became the biggest selling single of all time over there. Until a certain somebody (laughs) took it back. Yeah, I I don't like the idea of patting these famous people on the back for volunteering. I volunteer. Who cares? You should volunteer. Way to go, rich people, for partying through singing one line. Yeah, and we talked about this um, before we even started this episode, is how many people were there because they truly believed in what was happening in Ethiopia and they had to be a part of it. They were a call to action. You to know. relieving what was happening. <laughs> Nobody in the documentary even saw the BBC special that no. Bob saw that was moved him so much. They're just doing it because he called up. And then once the ball gets rolling and you find out that George Michael's there and boy George's there, sure, I'll do it too. So I am a little conflicted with how many people were there because it was going to be a great contribution to their brand and their name versus they really believed in what they were doing. I don't know. And I don't know if it even really matters. That's a good philosophical debate. But I think that ultimately, if something is doing good, it doesn't matter what the intention is. But I I don't know that this did as much good as they wanted it to. And it couldn't because they you know, they're not politicians. Yeah. And, you know, Boy George reflected on this, too. And he said, I don't know. I'm assuming nothing's changed over there because the population's doubled. But he said what did happen with all of this is that it brought global awareness to what was happening. Mm -hmm. And I do agree with that. Money aside, the fact that you had other countries stepping up and recording singles and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. it was coming right back to the very beginning of our episode. We as school children in the 80s were aware of what was happening in Ethiopia because of things like this. Yeah. So we wouldn't have known if just the BBC show had, had aired. We would have never known. But because the single came out, it brought global awareness. In addition to a lot of other efforts. Not like Bob Gildoff was the one who no. <laughs> only spread awareness of Ethiopian It, it was a huge news story for years. But, but he did so, bring it to pop culture. Yeah, and it did a lot of good. Overall, this is a really interesting effort by one guy with a super crazy idea. Mm-hmm. And he pulled it off. I can't believe he pulled it off. Yeah, but it's wild. It's got its, um, it's got its complications. It's got its troubled past. You still have to hear it every single Christmas yep. in the supermarket. But it's Christmas, so it's this Christmas. is your last day. It you is don't have Christmas. to hear it tomorrow. Okay, everybody. Well, that is our special Christmas episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. However, as we said at the beginning, we also have a very special announcement. Another Christmas uplifting, joy-filled story. My heart's racing. (laughs) It might just be that I had three cups of coffee today. That's true. Okay, everybody. After 135 episodes and three straight years of never missing a show, we have come to the conclusion that we are just so incredibly busy in our personal lives that we are unable to give the time and effort and commitment to Laser Graves. I know this is going to be a shock to our longtime loyal listeners. If you are a new listener, you've got 134 other episodes to go back and listen to. But we're making this decision not lightly. It's been quite a, quite a long time coming. And that is just that we're trying to do what's in the best interest of both our personal efforts outside of this podcast mm-hmm. and making sure that If we were to do something for this podcast, it's the best we can do and not just kind of squeeze and buy an episode here and there. Yeah. That doesn't mean necessarily, I know it's a little complicated, doesn't mean that we're 
ending the show. Yeah, we're not necessarily done. We're just putting a pause on it. And it may be a permanent vacation. We don't know. We just don't know. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, We need a break for sure. If we do decide to come back in the new year, if we do, it will not be a set time like it has been every two weeks or something like that. It'll be if we feel like doing an episode. And I don't want to come across as sounding like we do what we want when we want. But again, it is our show and we will do what we want when we want. (laughs) If we want to do a show, that's going to have to be how it is. Yeah, we we can't commit. We're overcommitted in every aspect of our life. If you know us personally, uh, you know we've got a lot of a lot of plates spinning right now, and something has to take a break. Yeah, I'm trying to work on directing my first feature film. I'm putting out a brand new album. All these things demand all my attention as well. So, it is what it is. I will say that up till this point, three years later, we have only received five star reviews. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you to everybody who has supported us. Sincerely, this is really a moment of of sincerity. Yes. Uh, thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Most of you have been there since day one, too. So you know where, where that's going. We will just pause your payment so that you still have access to all the back episodes of Patreon. And you guys have a little bit more coming to you. Yeah, we've got two more coming at you, but... That'll be open and available still to all of our patrons. So it's not like it all just goes away right now, but you won't be being charged you yeah, know, every month. It's just on pause. And then on a larger note, um, just because I don't know if we'll be back or not, thank you to all the podcasts who have supported us. We have a really amazing podcast family, and that sounds yeah. cheesy, but it's true. Our biggest support comes from other podcasts supporting us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know who you are. You've all helped us spread you know, our shows and, and on Instagram and everything else. But the ones that I need to definitely just point out are the ones who actually had us come on or myself come on as a guest host and help kind of raise our own audience through the awareness on their podcasts. Uh, Neon Brainiacs, way back in the day, they, mm-hmm. they brought me on. Super Tat Film Club, yeah. RIP. I hope they come back one day. But they're doing amazing things right now, too. Our friends over at Reconcinimation yep. gone on there so many times. And then, of course, our, you know, potty mouth partners in crime, <laughs> Bad Taste Video Podcast, who has had me on so many times and uh, our closest friends there. And they've been real champions for the show as well. And I know they're the ones that are the most pissed off that we're ending it, but we're riding out into the sunset on a five-star review. So Yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) No, it's been a lot of fun. Um, uh, Thanks to everybody. We're not going to drag this on, but that's just where we're at. We're just being honest. We do need to tell you that if we record another episode, and I I suspect there will come a time when we miss it and want to, um, but maybe not. We'll see. We're being real wishy-washy about it, but we'll keep our Instagram open yeah. so that you can't, we'll notify you there if we have a new episode coming out, so you'll know. Yeah, and lasergrades.com will still be up and running, so you can still get to all of our back episodes. Mm-hmm. not like we're going to delete them or anything like that. Yeah, we love you guys, and we appreciate that you've been listening. Yeah, and- it's been a lot of fun. The whole intent of this show was to just find out about weird stuff from the 80s, and I can tell you we've done that. <laughs> yes, and we love hanging out with each each other i think that's probably what's come through most obviously and i'm sorry you guys don't get to hear it but we're gonna just continue to do that <laughs> yeah laser graves continues <laughs> off mic every day <laughs> okay everybody well that's enough of that um happy holidays whatever holiday you celebrate during this time mm-hmm. um today is christmas though and we hope that you enjoyed it that's assuming boy that's pretty um 
uh, that's a pretty big assumption that they're listening on Christmas Day. They're like, stop what you're doing with your families. <laughs> we got to listen to that new Laser Graves episode. I don't know. I don't know how you celebrate or if you do. Yeah. If you actually are listening on Christmas Day right now, you're like a, a real fan. So thank you. You're the ones that probably are going to miss this show the most. And okay, we'll everybody. That's it. If you want to follow us, we're on Laser Graves at Laser Graves. And we're at Patreon at patreon.com slash lasergraves. Our personal sites, uh, if you want to follow my tape site, I'm at Arg the Awful. And I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. You can see art and maybe yoga stuff. I don't know. And if you want to follow my personal stuff, my film and music, I'm at EK Wimmer on Instagram. Uh, I don't know. Maybe until next time. Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.